Welcome to GodPod. This is a podcast from St. Paul's Theological Centre based in Holy Trinity Brompton here in London. Jane Williams, Mike Lloyd and the occasional guest join me, Graham Tomlin, in discussing God, life, theology, the Bible, in fact, just about everything. Well, welcome everybody to GodPod number 65, which is quite a large number. We've reached our retirement age. Almost. But nothing is going to stop us. Absolutely. We will carry on regardless. Like retirement ages generally, just being pushed further (laughs) and further back. Let's feel like it. And uh, we are here in our normal place with um, our cups of coffee. No biscuits. No No biscuits biscuits. today. And Mike actually has one with the words Great Expectations written on his mug. Not a biscuit, you understand, but a mug, yeah. Yeah. This is, when he says mug, he means the kind that you put tea in. Well, I mean, it could be (laughs) either kind of mug you put tea in, but. Great Expectations is what we have for GodPod 65. It is. Going to be good, isn't that it? That was a very neat little link there. It wasn't bad, was it? it <laughs> Sorry, we messed it up by <laughs> interrupting it yes, constantly. Can we start again. What <laughs> <laughs> the dickens do you think you're doing? Uh, yeah, thank you. Well, as you can probably guess from already, we have the, uh, the 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 home team, which is Michael, hi, and Jane, hello, and myself, Graham, and um, we are about to launch into another set of questions. And it's, it's always very good to read all the various things that people say when they um, email in to us. Now, especially the ones that, I mean, it's always quite fun to get ones that have questions, but it's always quite good to get ones that have um, a little bit of comment around it as well. Um, I kind of quite like this one, which said, um, I just wanted to drop a line to thank you for GodPod, which has dramatically improved my miserable Victoria line-based mornings on the London high-intensity compression system. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds rather uh, painful to me. Um, though Mike could do with speaking up. Yes, yes, I'm going to speak up. <laughs> We've been trying to stop him for years. <laughs> exactly. As every time the vile rattling contraption lunges in an interesting new direction, the resulting—is that Jane? <laughs> the resulting—I'm uh, trying to keep going here. The resulting grinding noise cancels him out, which is ah. a very good thing, I should think. So it is Jane. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> trying to rewind an iPod when you're standing in someone else's armpit and resting under someone else's chin is an adventure, as I'm sure you can all imagine. So, um, so we'll keep going with the uh, wrestling with the iPod. Uh, well, today we've got a number of uh, questions that we're going to have a go at. And um, the first is from uh, Nicholas Cooper. And I have no idea where Nicholas comes from because he doesn't tell us. Um, oh, no, she does. Yes, he comes from Northampton. There you are, Northampton in the UK. And uh, it's a question about um, about the Eucharist. And uh, the uh, it's, it's a, I'll, I'll try to sum- summarize it here. How do different churches understand the idea of the presence of Christ in the Eucharist? And trying to understand the idea of transubstantiation, um, are we to think of it in that sense? What does that mean? Consubstantiation is another word that's used. Does that make sense? Um, when we talk about the body of Christ, does that mean that we, um, that the body of bread and wine, become the body of Christ in any sense? Uh, when we talk about us, the church, being the body of Christ, are we literally the body of Christ or something else? So there's a whole series of questions around there on how we understand Christ's presence in uh, communion or Eucharist or Lord's Supper or however people want to call it. So uh, who's going to start? Any thoughts on this one? It is, of course, one of the most hotly um, contested areas of uh, Christian theology. It's, it's one of the great ironies, isn't it, that the thing that Jesus told us to do 
in remembrance of him is the thing that's most divided us over the centuries. So whatever we say, somebody is going to disagree with us, but then I suppose mm. we're used to that, aren't mm, we? Absolutely. Probably in this room, in fact. Indeed, <laughs> yes. We three are going to disagree. <laughs> yeah. I, it might, might be worth starting with the transubstantiation um, number because that's raising the question. Uh, and it... It's based on Aristotelian philosophy, basically, this difference between substance and accidents, which is Aristotle's way of, of talking about um, things and reality. Uh, basically, if you've got a table, um, its tableness is its substance. The accidents, the things that are accidental and could be different, are it could be a different colour, it could be a different... Uh, shape it could be made of wood instead of metal or whatever those are accidental um, but its tableness is its substance and this was something that was used uh, by medieval catholicism um, as a way of talking about the eucharist that the the bread remains the same the accidents remain the same it's still bread if you did a chemical analysis on it it's still bread um, but its substance has changed. And it's really a way of saying that the meaning of the thing has changed. Um, now, most of us don't use Aristotelian philosophy anymore, and therefore, for some people, it's, it's a rather difficult concept to get your head around. And, and also, I think it has a few problems, um, because it suggests that the thing is, is, is no longer essentially bred. <laughs> Uh, it is physically bread, but it's not. Its meaning isn't. Whereas I think, when God comes along, He doesn't normally push out other meanings and other realities. Mm. He adds to them rather than subtracts mm. from them, um, and and that's why I think it's not necessarily the most helpful way of looking at. It. But mm. it's just a shot at talking about yeah. uh, what happens and and how mm. God is real and present within it. And of course, one of the um, kind of key responses to that in the sort of reformation period it was of course um quite a wide variety of, of positions on the eucharist and i think again you know people sometimes think well the you know the the protestant reformation had a, a single view of the communion but actually it, it didn't there was quite a wide variety of views on it and and one i've always found very sort of fascinating even though I'm not quite sure i agree with it at the end of the day is sort of is, is, is luther's position on it which which to was to deny transubstantiation the theory that you've just explained mike basically on the grounds that you don't need a theory to explain something which is just mysterious anyway mm -hmm. and in fact aristotle wasn't a christian you don't need a sort of pagan philosopher to tell you what god does um so um so he has no truck with transubstantiation but he does say that when we uh take the bread and the wine we do actually feed on christ physically in some sense and his grounds for saying that is that uh when God reveals himself to us, uh, he reveals himself to us in physical form, um, in creation, but preeminently, of course, in the incarnation. That, you know, when God chose to reveal himself to us, he didn't do it in a sort of vaguely spiritual form. Um, he did it actually in the physical flesh of Christ. That's the way God communicates himself to us, in physical things. And uh, if we're to receive God in Christ then you can't really separate out the sort of physical and the spiritual. You can't sort of say, well, the physical is sort of secondary. It doesn't really matter. It's The spiritual is the real, real thing. Uh, no, you need to receive Christ in his incarnate self. And on those grounds, he says, if, if in the Eucharist we are given Christ, we take Christ into ourself in any sense at all, 
that has to be in some sense physical. It's, it's the kind of incarnate Christ that we take into ourselves. Now, he says, therefore, that we do feed on Christ bodily. Um, as I say, he doesn't think you need transubstantiation to explain that. Um, at the end of the day, Jesus says, this is my body. What do you do with the word of God? Do you just believe it? You don't question it. You don't sort of try to understand it in any sort of wider sense. You just believe it. Um, faith is how you respond to the word of God. So that's, I guess, Luther's response to the whole sort of medieval idea of transubstantiation. It's to reject the theory, but actually to, to, to retain something of the essence of the idea that we actually do. You know, we are given Christ. We actually feed on Christ in the Eucharist bodily. So in a, in a, um, a, a more, um, I mean, if you, if you basically use the Eucharist just as a memorial, um, which I know some traditions do. They, they, we, we, we do the Eucharist because Jesus told us to do it in memory of him. Uh, and you don't um, actually think of, of the body and blood as, uh, uh, as the bread and wine as in any important sense, the body and blood. It's simply a, a hmm. repetition and a, a way of remembering. What is lost if you just do that? Yeah. Well, of course, that was, I mean, that was a big debate Luther had with, with, with Zwingli, the yeah. Swiss reformer who, who had a, a variety of views on the Eucharist during his or the Lord's Supper, as he was called, as he would call it during his career. But essentially, it was the idea that you know when we, Christ is present when we have communion, mm. but he's only present in the hearts of the believers. Uh, he's not present in any sense in the in the bread and the wine, mm. um, because Zwingli makes quite a distinction between the sort of spirit and and the body. He wants to say that you know that 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 God is spirit, and that if we encounter God, we encounter God as spirit not as, as flesh. And I think I think what Luther would say and what he would often say to people like Zwingli and, and Munzer is it's as if, you know, God doesn't actually give himself to us. That all we get is a picture. All we get is a visual aid. All we get is a, something that points away from, from the thing. We're not actually given Christ. And I think one of the great virtues of Luther's position, even though, as I say, I'm not sure I quite buy it at the end of the day, um, is that he, he has a very strong sense that, that in in the Lord's Supper, in the Eucharist, we are actually given Christ. And he gives himself to us, not just a picture of himself. And, um, of course, the other way in which people have tried to get round this debate, uh, and part of the problem is the debate is is conditioned by the history of it, isn't it? A history of, of people disagreeing about it, so it's very mm. hard to come to it fresh. But um, some people also want to say it isn't. it's we who are changed. Mm. So mm. it's not that the bread and wine are changed, it's that... We we are transubstantiated. We become yeah. the body of Christ mm. uh, in participating in in the Eucharist, and that seems to me to make more sense of what Paul says. I mean that that, that Paul's whole um, very complex theology of what it is to be in Christ, mm. um, which is at least um, sometimes a sacramental theology. Um, I mean, through baptism we die mm. and become something new. Um, through participating in the body of Christ, we are actually a new um, physical, new creation, a new creation, a new yeah. entity. Yes, mm. and I think uh, you get a number of different strands in the New Testament. There is the "do this in remembrance of me," which can be read in a in a purely kind of memorial. symbolic yeah. Mm. Yeah. Uh, mm. memorial sense. Um, but you also get Paul saying, the bread which we break, is it not a participation mm. in the body of Christ? Somehow, by doing this act, 
that Jesus left us, we participate in him. In particular, we participate in the cross. It is a, a time travel, so like a wormhole mm-hmm. that enables you to, to be there on the cross. Were you there when, I, when they crucified my Lord? When mm. you eat the bread and drink the wine, you're saying, mm. yes, I, mm. I was there. Mm. I am there. I'm part of that. Yeah. And it's a wormhole to the future as well, isn't it? It takes you yes. back to that, um, you know, the world-changing event of the cross, which which is also the great banquet of the fulfillment of mm. God's mm. Um, creation and, and, and the sort of density of the symbolism, uh, and which is more than symbolism, um, of the Eucharist is mm. one of the problems, isn't it, that you, the whole of theology you can unpack on in Eucharistic theology, mm. can't you? Mm. And, and the, the future, um, in a sense, the Eucharist is a very good picture of uh, what God is going to do with the whole cr- of creation. He, he indwells this little bit of creation in the way that he's going one day to indwell the whole thing the the earth shall be filled with Mm. the glory Mm. of god as the waters cover the sea Mm. um and and here we have a little bit half done in advance uh he's indwelled this Mm. bit Mm. uh in the way that he's going to indwell Mm. the whole the whole universe yeah and i i quite like that idea of um that you know that that it's so much about the transformation of us as we participate in this we know we participate in the body of christ and that you know we are moved it's not that somehow the necessarily the elements are moved in some way but w- we are changed and i've always i suppose i've been quite drawn to to um <coughs> i guess to calvin's view of the of the of the, the lord's supper or the uh, as he would call it um which is kind of the, the when, when you when we part when we participate he's actually different from something he says you know we do we do actually feed on Christ. It's not just a visual aid. It's not just a symbol. It's not just a sort of picture of something else. We do feed on Christ. But, and this is, I suppose, where I probably do think Luther's approach doesn't quite work, is that that Luther doesn't have en- enough of a, of a theology of the Holy Spirit in that, you know, what is the mode of Christ's presence with us now? Well, actually, it's not incarnation because the incarnate Christ is now ascended to the right hand of the Father. Uh, it is by the spirit that christ is present now that's not a sort of vague sort of you know not so good presence it's a it is a sort of substantial presence by the spirit and so calvin's idea is that when we when we take bread and wine uh, we ascend by the spirit to the right hand of the father you know to the body to where the body of christ is but that happens in the spirit so we if you like participate and we feed on christ in the spirit rather than on the sort of physical because there's yeah one problematic aspects of that and but I, but I sort of like that sense that that yes you know there is a genuine feeding on Christ here this is not just an empty picture we are given Christ which is I think the great virtue of Luther's mm-hmm. position but Calvin seems a little bit more nuanced because he you know he, he, he gets a bit he's got a much stronger doctrine of the spirit and the idea that we, we feed on the spirit and we are we are caught up with Christ to the right hand of the father as we take bread and wine together yeah, I mean, I, I like Jane's thing about it being us who are changed and transformed and transubstantiated. I'm as sure well. I didn't make it up, but thank you for giving me <laughs> a rare moment of agreement there between Jane well, and Mike. But <laughs> oh, I knew it wouldn't last. <laughs> um, but I, 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 I have a kind of hesitation that, that I feel that something we need to say something about the bread as well in this in on the same way that there is you know you can talk about the resurrection as being christ is raised in the hearts and minds and Mm. lives of the disciples Mm. but you also Mm. want to say something about 
the, the actual body in the tomb. And I wonder whether there isn't a parallel here with, with the bread. Yes, of course, it is about our transformation and we are transformed as we eat, as we feed on Christ in that way. Um, but does nothing happen to the bread? I, I just wonder whether there isn't some particular putting aside of this bit of creation for a particular purpose of God. Which is why I think mm. um, remembering the role of the Spirit in this is actually really helpful. Mm. Um, be, uh, at the, the, the moment of the Eucharist where um, the priest, the, the minister, um, calls down the Holy Spirit upon the people and the, the gifts of bread and wine, mm. Mm. that's when... something transformative happens whatever you want to say is happening it's through the power of the Holy Spirit that it's happening Mm -hmm. Um, and I I think I probably would want to say both you know it is it is Mm. um, one of it transforms everything uh, um, and I suppose one one way of understanding that is is um, it's a sort of theory known as a rather long word of trans signification Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which is in other words the idea that that what changes is the significance of the bread and the wine that we're not necessarily to think of some internal sort of aristotelian change to the substance of the the things that we've got to sort of somehow you know pretend that it is actually the body and blood of christ or it has become the body and blood of christ in a very sort of physical literal way but its significance has now changed for us it's no longer ordinary bread and wine in the same way that you know my my wedding ring is not just an ordinary bit of gold it's actually it signifies something much more significant than that and i wouldn't throw away my wedding ring not just because it's valuable because it signifies my marriage and it, it's, it's it's very important to me it's it's, it's a it's not just a, an empty picture it signifies and captures that and and, and so therefore the the sense that you know <coughs> with the bread and the wine when that prayer is prayed over it, when we pray that it will become for us the body and blood of Christ or whatever the words we use, that its significance does change, which is why I guess in a lot of churches after the service is over, we don't feel comfortable about pouring the wine down the sink or using the bread for toast mm. um, because it's it's become something different. It's it's become something with a greater significance because it's been used as, if you like, a vehicle for for um, for feeding on mm. on Christ in the spirit. I, I think the Eucharist is is a drama, and you pl- you perform a role yeah. within it. I don't mean a bread role. I mean <laughs> <laughs> the bread performs its own role. You perform uh, a bread role, <laughs> um, <clears throat> and and I think actors will tell you that when you perform a, a role, you don't just do it and then go away mm. unchanged. Mm. You are changed by having performed it, um, and by the whole set of interactions involved in it. Um, and I, th- I think the, the bread similarly plays a role within that. Yeah. But um, and it's a drama, but it's also completely every day, isn't it? And I think yes. sometimes Eucharistic theology gets so highfalutin that you forget it's feeding. Um, it's it's uh, and you know if you say you are what you eat, <laughs> um, yeah. then what mm. we eat, what what actually um, shapes us physically, uh, what pr- provides our primary source of nourishment, we are saying is is. Jesus, the life of Jesus, mm. Mm. and and the community, and the community that in the con- yeah. which is the context in which we do that because yeah. we do it together. It seems to me, it's, you know, the old word communion is very useful because we tended to see it as a private private act of mm. union, but it's mm. communion. It's what we do together, mm. and that's an essential part of the whole mm. process, yeah. which is why we mm. share the peace in a number of traditions, mm. which a lot of people hate because it, it 
it is actually a way of saying this is a communal act. We yeah. belong together. We do it together. And that's essential to what's going on. So I, I love the, the sort of sense that when people are laying the table um, for the Eucharist, it's like laying the table for a family meal and you, you lay it mm. out and you invite people to come and join in and you do the washing up at the end. Mm. Um, mm. And it's com- something completely every day that is making us, that is feeding us into um, the new people in yeah. Christ. Very interesting. And um, that maybe uh, connects in some way into our next question, which is from... Um, wait for the link. Uh, wait for the link. Uh, it's coming. Uh, Sarah Wilcox, who is um, about to go to... Well, she lives in New Zealand, um, and she's about to go to Antarctica uh, on a boat with 50 other New Zealanders committed to raising the profile of the continent and issues that threaten it. These include overfishing, tourism, mineral exploitation, and climate change. And uh, she's using the opportunity to talk to people in local churches about our responsibility as Christians to the environment uh, <coughs> and show them pictures of penguins and albatrosses. Wouldn't mind seeing those. So she would value our thoughts. Do we, th- do we think we have special responsibilities as Christians? And what do you think are the key issues we should be thinking about in relation to the environmental crisis that is likely approaching? And the link, wait for it, yes. is um, I suppose it's this, this idea that if if, if God is does reveal himself to us in the physical mm. uh-huh. Uh-huh. in the in the physicality of bread and wine but also in creation and we're not just talking about a sort of vague spiritual connection with god it's in, in what sense does you know we've been thinking about that in terms of what how that how that teaches us to think about the eucharist but how might that also teach us to think about the environment the mm. creation in which we're we're living as well it's actually a very good link mm. thank you Graham. michael um, but because <laughs> of course the bread and the wine are in some ways, symbolic of, or indeed incorporative, yeah. representative of the whole of, whole of creation, um, and and God's plan, desire to fill that, yeah. and yeah. and and the reality is that we don't get to know God in any other way. There is no spiritual way of getting to know God. There's mm. only that because we're not spiritual beings. Mm. We're bodies <laughs> um, yeah uh, and that's and not accidental that's no not exactly a, that's what we are that's not a sort of no darn it i made some bodies by mistake yeah exactly <laughs> well, let's live with it so it's, it's so again it's not accidental that's how we encounter god that's the only way in which we can encounter god because yeah. that's what we are mm. and and <coughs> so i think we've sort of somehow managed to persuade ourselves that we in some important sort of spiritualized sense can survive without the world that makes us Mm. Um, and there's nothing that I can see in the Bible that suggests that is the case we are integrated into um, the world that makes Mm. us and Mm. that's how it's designed to be yeah I was reading um, Bonhoeffer the other day making this point that we we are our bodies it's not that we have bodies that we are our our bodies we don't think of our bodies as something that we just sort of possess as a sort of separate thing from us but that's, that's who we are we are physical beings and in a sense, always will be, which is why the resurrection of the body is such a c- crucial Christian doctrine. We don't, we're not thinking about the immortality of the soul. We're thinking about the resurrection of the body. So transformed bodies, mm. not like these ones, but still bodies in the same way. And so that physicality never—it's not a temporary thing. It's a—it's something to be transformed, but it's something also to be retained in some way. So, yeah. Yes. I, um, part of that is what we were saying earlier that God doesn't take away that he adds to it mm-hmm. and that's what the resurrection of the body will be about but it's not a taking away of our physicality it's a making of us more than physical not less than physical yeah. and I think it's down forgetting or downplaying the importance of the physical 
that has meant that Christians have not been as involved in environmental concern and action as, as we should have been. Um, I don't think we have a particular responsibility as Christians, but we have a responsibility as human beings, as people made in the yeah. image of God to, to yeah. rule and love mm. and care for mm. and serve creation, yeah. mm. um, which as Christians we should have been insisting upon and giving an mm. leading, leading by mm. example mm. in. But uh, because we've had this narrow, spiritualized, de-physicalized, mm. I would say platonic or Gnostic um, I, conception of, of who we are, um, we've we've not done that, and it's been tragic. And other people have have taken the lead, mm. and left I us think to follow. I think that that's right. I think when my response is, "Do we have any special responsibilities mm. as Christians?" Yes and no. I think yes. is my answer. No, in the sense that that the call to care for creation is fundamentally a human calling, not a Christian calling. Mm. It's incumbent on the whole of us, whole of humanity, as the image bearers of God, called to care for creation in God's name. That's our that's our human calling. That's what we're here to do. It's it's not to consume the resources of the earth. It's not just to enjoy ourselves. It's not just to indulge ourselves. It's actually to care for creation and enable creation to be what it has the potential to be, to, to be to the praise of God's glory. And, you know, trees praise God by being trees, and so we have to enable them that to happen. So, you know, that's absolutely central, it seems to me, to the, the human calling is to care for creation. Um and therefore, as Christians, we don't have any more or less responsibility than anybody else does. And so we shouldn't sort of presume that it's, you know, we, are, we Christians are called to save the earth. Actually, in some ways, we, we humans are called to, mm. to care for the earth. But it may be that there's a role for Christians there to, to draw attention to why we do that. And it does seem to me that there's something quite significant there about, you know, Christian faith is one of the only ways, actually, that enables you to, to talk of the creation as actually good. Because so many other understandings of, of, of physicality and creation actually either suggest that creation is bad and temporary um, or it's a means to an end. Yes. And uh, the, 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 the Christian doctrine that creation is created, the, 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 the physical world comes out of the will of a good creator and it is good full stop is actually quite a unique idea. Mm. Yes, and there was a, <coughs> a case oh, 20, 20 years ago or so when the British Secretary of State for the Environment, of all, of all people, suggested privatising nature reserves, which seemed to me to be a way of saying it's only valuable as a way of <laughs> making money. Mm. Mm. Um, whereas what I think we want to say is no, it's intrinsically valued as valuable as and for what it is. Um, but I suppose um, as Christians, we might have some responsibility to help other Christians work their way through this because actually Christians haven't spoken with one voice and still don't speak with one voice about um, how we inter interact with creation. There are Christians who suggest, you know, God made one creation, he can make another one. Um, so, you know, if this one gets messed up, never mind, God will make an, an, a new one that's, that's better. And you, you sort of have to see that the same thing could be said about human beings, couldn't it? God could have looked at us, well, that's gone horribly wrong, let's let's sc scrap that and start again. Mm -hmm. And that actually, the Bible suggests, is not the way God works. God um, transforms what is already existing. He doesn't scrap it and start again. Works mm -hmm. with it and yes. absorbs the pain yeah. of it. And that mm -hmm. glorious mm -hmm. vision in, in, in Genesis, the first few chapters of Genesis, of how everything interrelates mm -hmm 
um, every every day of creation comes out of the potentiality of the day before. Mm. Um, uh, the human beings are made out of the dust of the earth. Uh, the, the the woman is taken out of the man, so that out of the out of the man, so that mm. what is perfectly clear is that everything interrelates. Mm. Everything yes. depends on. Mm. <laughs> or everything yeah. all around it, mm. and and that is such a profound vision, I mm. think, and and one which modern science has increasingly well, exactly. unpacked mm. exactly. for us the, yes. the degree of interaction. Mm. Uh, but there's also a sort of unique thing I think Christians can bring <coughs> in, in the context of the debate with the whole sort of modern atheism question. I mean, it does seem to me that that the sort of um, not a scientific, but a that sort of um, uh, that understanding of the world that essentially the creation is here actually by accident. Mm. It's actually accidental, not purposeful. Mm. Yes. It actually doesn't give you a very strong reason for caring for it. Because if we and the world are here basically by accident, there's no design behind it, there's no will behind it, it doesn't give you a very strong reason for saying it's good and therefore is a value in itself. It seems to me it leaves it open to the possibility of saying, well, if it's here by accident, then it might not be here. It's There's no great goodness behind it. There's no purpose behind it. Therefore, we can use it for what we want. And it seems to me if that frame of mind were to take hold on human culture, it would lead to a very instrumental view of, of creation, which again convinces me that Christian faith actually is ultimately the, the one framework of thinking that enables you to properly care for creation as good and other other views, whether it's the kind of platonic view that, that creation is bad and, and, and less than the spirit, spiritual world, or the kind of new atheist view that the creation is basically an accident, just doesn't give you the grounds for, for, for proper environmental no, care. Because um, when you think about it, value and purpose are both things that only a person can do. They're yeah. personal categories. You can't be valued by electricity. You can't be, you know, yeah. gravity doesn't have purposes. Um and therefore, if, these, if there isn't a person there who values creation and has purposes for it, then it's up to us to value it as much or as little as we like and yeah. to impose our purposes sure. upon it. Yeah. Um, whereas if there is a person there who does have purposes, intrinsic yeah. purposes for it, then yeah. it's mm. possible to mm. treat the world in a way that's appropriate and yeah. the way that's inappropriate, in a way that's in accord with those purposes mm. or a way that's not in accord with those purposes, yeah. a way that respects that value or a mm. way that doesn't respect mm. that value. Yeah, and so there like, is something in us, isn't there, that that instinctively knows that... I mean. If you look at a penguin, you know that a penguin has a right to, uh, is a, is a mm. is a thing of beauty and um, uh, enjoy forever. Uh, yes, yes, in itself, mm. um, and you, there's this instinct that we need to preserve things, not just because um, they're valuable to us, but because they're valuable. Mm. Full stop. Mm. It's yeah. very interesting, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's, 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 it's the same worldview that does carvings in places in cathedrals yes, where they will never be seen yeah. because it's beautiful and mm. that's enough. Mm. Um, perhaps we should put some of the pictures that this lady sends us. Um, penguins. Penguins yes. on, the, on our website. Yeah. website. Yeah. It's it's a penguin god pod. <laughs> so I think, um, yeah, it's been a very, very good discussion. I think what's coming out of that for me, I think, is the sense that, that yes, you know, care for creation is a is a human calling. It's not just a Christian one. But actually, we do have a distinct Christian role in drawing attention to the the Christian doctrine of creation, which 
I would say alone gives the possibility of a proper respect for creation and a proper care for it as good in itself that it's given to us to be cared for rather than just happens to be there for our, for our use and exploitation. And, and we have a concept of what it is to be human that we need to model yeah. and yeah. care yeah. of creation is part of that yeah. Exactly. Yeah. vision for, of humanity. Yeah. I think it was um, Leslie Newbegin used to use the image of a of a violin. You know, if you if you find a violin, a violin has been created for a purpose, and therefore there are things that it's not good to do with a violin. You could try and fry an egg on a violin, but it's not what it's made for. Um, a violin is there for the particular purpose of making beautiful music, and therefore you have to learn to use it in th- the purpose for which it was made, because it has a creator, because it has a distinct purpose. It seems to me that's a kind of true with of creation too. There are things for which it is made. It's there to glorify God by being itself, and therefore we have to enable that to happen. There are uses which are therefore wrong for creation and right for creation. Mm-hmm. But you can, as you say, only bring that out if you if it has a sense of personal purpose behind it. Well, um, we've uh, done the Eucharist. <laughs> we've done the environment. We've done everything beginning with the E. So <laughs> exactly right. And just one last question. I, I hes- hesitate to do this one because with five minutes left, we're going to do good and evil. Oh, that's easy. <laughs> <laughs> Let's wrap it up. But we do have Dr. Evil present with us today, <laughs> Mr. Mike Lloyd. Um, for those uh, of you who wonder why Graham is saying that, <laughs> that, that was the topic of Mike's PhD dissertation. It was indeed, yeah. yes. yes and I like to think that's why I'm called that. <laughs> no other reason. No other reason. Of course not, Michael. Um, the question is really, how does a good God use evil? And um, this is a question from Troy in uh, Oregon, USA. We've had Northampton, New Zealand, and America today. And I guess the question is... Um, is if God creates the world and calls all that is in it good, and we've been thinking about that in our last question, um, he then seems to withdraw and allow evil to have its course. He seems to just disappear off the scene, allows Adam and Eve to partake of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Everything goes horribly wrong, and uh, that doesn't seem quite right. And uh, the idea that God allows evil is rather thin, you know, if uh, if we allow a child to wander out into a busy street that you could have stopped, that's not a good thing. And if we're proper parents, we protect our children from doing bad things. And uh, God doesn't seem to have done that in the Garden of Evil, so Garden of Eden. So it is basically God somehow using evil for His purposes. It's sort of inevitable that somehow, right from the beginning, it was designed that the world would go wrong, so that God could get His purposes in the end. So that's the question. And um, Mike, we're all looking at you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I noticed that. <laughs> um, I, I think uh, I, I don't think that uh, God wanted evil to happen. I think that would make him less than morally serious if he said, "Don't do this," and secretly wanted them to do so. Um, I think he said, "Don't do it," because I think it wouldn't. He knew it wouldn't be good for them. Um, I don't, in the end, think that. Uh, I understand why Troy thinks that the idea of God permitting evil but not committing evil is is a thin one, but but I I actually think it's an, an important one. Um, it's a way of uh, saying that God gives us space to be who we choose to be. He does not compel us to be who we are. Um, that there is causal shortfall 
in our moral decisions and choices. And without that, I think we are simply robots. I don't think we have personality. I don't think we have choice. I don't think we have freedom. I don't think there is such a thing as love uh, mm. if we are forced to do it. And and the, the, the pictorial kind of sense that uh, Troy picks up on in, in Genesis that God kind of leaves them to it mm. is a way of saying, well, we do have space to be who we are. Mm. And God does not invade that space or cramp us. It's interesting the the image he uses of the parent and the child, isn't it? Because yes, as a parent, you don't allow your kid to wander out on the streets. But there is a form of parenting that is over controlling, mm -hmm. that doesn't allow the child to do anything. Mm -hmm. And that tries to control the every single moment, every single thought, every single action that the child has. Their career a, choice, their marriage exactly, choice, their whatever. Which is a no. deeply oppressive thing. And, and, yes. and actually, you know, do we actually want God to do that for us? Yes, we want him to... To, to place limits on us so that some of the consequences of our choices aren't as bad as we as they might be otherwise so we do want some limits around us but we don't want total cramping control and that's how we work as parents and children and it seems to me that if we think of God as a father that there must be something of that in his his treatment of us as human beings that he does place limits around us and seems to be the Genesis story does remind us of our finitude and in a sense story of the fall being banished from the um, the Garden of Eden but having this mark placed on Cain that you know people won't kill him wherever he goes all those sort of stories seem to be about you know restricting the the, the effects of uh, of the damage that we do to ourselves and other people but that's not the same as controlling every single tiny action and motivation that we have Augustine, of course, would say and um, um, that that nothing is intrinsically evil. Mm. Mm. Um, that that everything um, in right relation with other things is good, mm -hmm. um, uh, including you know the serpent in the garden. Augustine would have said it. It isn't intrinsically evil. <coughs> it, it, it is very clever and crafty and suggests something. But it's because the human beings respond to that suggestion that things get into the wrong relationship with each other, and bad things follow. Um, so uh, uh, I think if you say that. Um, that God creates evil, you are in a sense becoming a dualist, aren't you? Saying mm. there are two mm. uh, equal and opposing forces, even or even if you're saying that God <laughs> is slightly greater, you're saying there are two forces, and um, Christian theology is ruling that out. There, there is only mm. one source of reality in the world, and it's God. Um, and I, I don't know. I, I've always found it quite compelling to think there's nothing that is intrinsically evil. Things go wrong in relationships. Um, in relation to other things, because the relationships have gone wrong. Yes, I think that, I think that's exactly right. There are no, there's no such thing as a, you can't go and get a pint of evil or a pound no. of evil. Um, e evil is, I think, more of a verb than a noun. Yes. Um, uh, Oliver Donovan uses the picture of somebody looking at a broken chair and say, "Ah, did the carpenter make this breakage?" It's a category mm. mistake. Mm. No, he made a chair and it got broken, mm. and, and therefore evil is uh, an event a series of events um not a thing and i think that that's important however i think and though it is true that god can and does use evil events to his purposes that doesn't stop them from being evil i think that's an important thing yeah. to grasp mm. that mm. it doesn't suddenly become okay then because god has brought some kind of good out of it no it remains a, an evil destructive event uh, and I think that's pastorally very important so that we don't belittle what has happened to somebody. 
uh, and say, oh, well, yeah. I'm sure God can use it, um, and therefore that's okay. Mm. And it's not okay. Mm. Um, and you get that Jesus talking about um, the, the act of Judas betraying Jesus. Uh, it, it, God will use it and take it up into uh, his plan of putting the world to rights. But that doesn't stop it from being an evil mm. act and an evil event. Um, and I think that's one of the things that we mm. that we need to be careful mm. um, when we're talking about how God uses evil. Mm. He, he will give it a purpose that it does not intrinsically have. Mm. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Jane, as always. Thank, well done, Mike, for speaking up today. So, oh, sorry. I, yes, maybe I should You'll have, have to wait and hear if people thought you spoke <laughs> up. <laughs> Can he be heard on the tube? This is the question. <laughs> So that was GodPod 65. It was. We've reached retirement age. And we've gone As beyond it. you can it. probably tell. <laughs> right. Next one is... Should God be Pod. pensioned off. <laughs> That's right. We'll be in on our Zimmer frame for number 66 before long. So, uh, uh, well, we will, we will indeed be back a little bit later on. So uh, goodbye from all of us. Bye. Goodbye. That was GodPod, a podcast from the St. Paul's Theological Centre. If you want to send us a question, just email it to godpod at htb.org.uk. We can't promise to answer all the questions you send in, but we'll certainly try. Until next time, goodbye.